mean to be a church that lives with passion? Passion, right, disrupts. Passion has a way of disrupting things. Passion has a way of charging things. Passion almost has a way, too, of, of encouraging. And why in the, in the story that we find ourselves in, in the scriptures, why is it that there's this little story about a woman breaking a jar of oil, nard, wiping Jesus' feet with the, with the jar, with, with the oil, with her hair, and this is the story that in the book of Mark, Jesus says this, this story, this story will be told every time the gospel's preached. This story. How many of you have ever talked to somebody about your faith, talked to somebody about the way of Jesus, talked to somebody about your understanding of love and justice and beauty in the world as it relates to the cause of Christ, and you've dropped this story? You've been like, yeah, so I just want to be really winsome. I, I, I'm sharing about, no, no, God's like this. And, and guess how much God loves you, and you're unpacking it, and you're giving your best apologetic thing. For those of you who are the evangelists in the, in the room, and you're sharing, and you're, and you're really scared. A lot of us are really apprehensive to share our faith because it feels really strange this day and age, especially in this city. And you're going, you're going, and you're like, all right, so to really wrap this up, i got to tell you a story about a woman in the ancient Near East who breaks a bottle of nard, which already sounds funny. You're like, nard? Okay, I have a context for nard. And then she did this thing where she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. It's, it's crazy. Jesus told me to share that story. Because wherever the gospel is preached, I'm supposed to share that story. So you get it now. And someone's like, oh, I wish you had shared that first instead of all that Ravi Zachariah stuff or whatever. <laughs> Here's the story. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save the perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Braveheart. It's been a long time. I know I'm dating myself. Anyone seen the movie Braveheart? Oh, universal. Still, still, still relevant. Scottish, so the, the backstory, this kind of heroic myth that happens after basically the story of, of uh, Braveheart is this. Scottish leader at the end of his life uh, who unites the clans, right? This is Mel Gibson's character. 1359, he dies on his deathbed. And he basically says, look, this is what I want to have happen. These are my final wishes. When I die, I want someone to cut my heart out and bomb it and put, give it to a knight who's going to go on a noble quest. Perfectly normal request. Anyone writing your wills, I encourage you to update your will. So James Douglas is the one who takes this. He cuts his heart out and carries around his neck, this nobleman. He goes into battle, wearing the heart of the king. One day, I was on this crusade, and uh, James is fighting 
and I think it's about 1,300, uh, 13,000 Moors. His group is pinned in, pinned in, outnumbered, about to lose this battle. And in one desperate act of passion, and we know the story, I love the story, he rips the necklace off his neck. He throws it over the enemy's lines, and he goes, fight for the heart of your king. Throws it over right into the enemy, over the lines, and goes to his men, fight for the heart of your king. The motto of this family, of the Douglas family to this day, the motto is forward. Fight for the heart of the king. We are drawn to stories of great passion. I believe that below the mediocrity of our lives, there is a pilot light that burns. That burns. And so this story apparently is one of such great passion that it's worth telling over and over for centuries and centuries. The context, we have a woman named Mary, the best disciple, in my opinion. She's the one who seems to always get it. Always get it. They're in Bethany. They're having a dinner. You got Simon the leper. You got Lazarus, who was healed from the dead. You got Martha, who's there, who's always busy, still does not seem to get it. You've got the disciples, so a former leper, a former dead person, and a woman gathered around him. For those of you who know a little bit of the context, having a woman sit at the feet of a rabbi like Jesus was not socially acceptable. And Jesus seems to be not just okay with this, not just to allow it, but to encourage it. Reclining around the table and someone comes in and interrupts the conversation and it's Mary again. Jesus came to Bethany where Martha served. Martha's still serving. Can we stop and talk about that for a second? It says Martha served. Anyone who knows another story in the text, what is Martha doing in the other, the, the other moment where Mary and Martha are, are engaged in talking to Jesus? What's Martha doing? Is she's in the kitchen. Martha's upset with Mary. Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Or indeed only one, Mary has chosen the better. So this has happened before. This has happened before. Mary gets it. She knows where the action is. She knows where she's supposed to be. And so she bursts into the scene. Martha has failed to learn the lesson again. She defies these cultural expectations, and she is at the feet of Jesus. Here's the context of the women. They shouldn't be there in the first place sitting at the feet of Jesus. Second, we have the event, the anointing. This is an image of what the jar may have been like. This is awkward. Reading this as a 21st century uh, Westerner, you're probably looking at this text going, that's really strange, but there's probably some context that the pastor's gonna unpack to help me understand what on earth is going on in this story. I have bad news for you. Every place I have read to try to make sense of the context of why on earth this happened, I get, the only things I get is, yeah, it's pretty weird. <laughs> I mean, there's like 15 pages of exegesis from certain commentators, but it basically boils down to, uh, yep, yep, that was not socially acceptable. Not socially acceptable. So you're like, oh, cool, some things haven't changed. So next time you are tempted to break a jar of oil, olive oil maybe, get down at the feet of somebody who's sharing some good things and wash their feet, just know, yeah, it's weird. 
breaking cultural expectations. This is embarrassing. And so then there's the objection. The objection. In the Gospel of John, it says, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor worth a year's wages? The Gospel of Mark says some of those present were saying indignantly to one another. They were indignant. Why this waste of perfume could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor? And they rebuked her harshly. They rebuked the female disciple who gets it harshly. No cultural relevance at all. Live in the wealthy part of town. Imagine this. You're living in a wealthy part of town. Jesus comes in. Drop $160,000 just to hear somebody speak, and there'd be a 1,000 people going, why on earth would you do that? Why on earth would you put all that money towards a speaking engagement? Why would you put all that money towards the Museum of the Bible? Why would you put all that money towards that cathedral? They critique her passion. When they think they've got it right, Jesus rises up to her defense. He says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body before in and to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. The wrong response is recorded for everyone, for everyone Thousands of years later to read. Our natural internal response, at least for me, is when I read stories like this, I immediately go, well, I'm not one of the disciples. The disciples always get it wrong. We cannot for one minute assume that you are the ones who get it right. I'm so often the one critiquing other people's passion for God that's unrealistic. You can't live like that and live in providence. Our church, we got to contextualize better. I'm not against contextualization we got to get our systems and strategies right, not against systems and strategies. But there's an impulse in our community that we have sensed as leaders, and I know many of you have sensed it and heard it, is that is our immediate move, our immediate move. And we find ourselves often, many of us, critiquing others' passion. We have these built default responses. And so I want to put before you that my fear is that in my life, I'm going to be talked about, well, I don't think I'm really going to be talked about 100 years from now. But if I were to be talked about 100 years from now, that Andrew Mook will be known for his restraint rather than his abandonment. He'll be known for his moderation, not for his reckless love. He will be known for making sure that everybody feels all right and not for his abandonment for the things of Jesus. That I will be known as Andrew Mook, always measured. Many of you are laughing, as you know. My personality does not lend itself to that description. So here's what I want to talk about. What happens when we live with passion? A few reasons why I think that we, are, we resist. We resist living with passion. One is we have to embrace the controversy of passion. Why this waste? How many of you are still sitting there going, okay, I get it, the disciples are being critiqued, but why this waste? They did, they wasted money. It doesn't take away that, yes, all of that money. So the context around that, this would have been thousands of dollars. Most scholars think that um, people like Martha and Lazarus, Jews, would have been taxed maybe upwards of 90% between temple tax, 
between the tax collectors skinning off the top of what Caesar was already taxing them. We're talking serious poverty. This wasn't like, yeah, this wasn't done in some wealthy area. So why? This is such a waste. Those of you who are going, yeah, yeah, I think I still agree with the disciples, even though I know I'm not supposed to. Why this waste? Years worth of provision, it could have been, one scholar says, for a moment of passion. Here's why I think this is hard for us. We fail to understand the value of Jesus. The disciples loved kingdom mission, served the poor. Judas is greedy and wants something from the kingdom. Mary, though, wants Jesus himself. It's amazing how we can get things twisted so quick. Something as beautiful on the surface is, yeah, we should be a church that embodies the way of the kingdom of God, which means serving the poor and oppressed among us. That's a call of our church. That's what it means to join God in the renewal of all things. But Jesus is quickly pointing out, like, yeah, 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 that's not your motive. Let's be really clear here. They love the mission. They love the mission. Jesus, though, is greedy, and he wants something from the kingdom. Mary wants Jesus himself. And it's the people in the scriptures who see the value of Jesus elevated over everything. It's like everything flows from that. One of my favorite passages, in the name of time, I won't go through it because I know I'll get tripped up on it and preach like a separate sermon. But Philippians 3, 7 to 14. Just go home and read that one time. We've preached about that a lot over the, over the last couple of years, both north and downtown. To live with a total, Paul says words like this as he's writing to the church in Philippi. I consider everything scubalon for the sake of the gospel. I consider everything, everything else garbage for the sake of knowing Christ. Paul, in this, in this passage, goes, here's all the reasons I should have high spiritual ranking. And he goes, I consider it all really nothing for the sake of knowing Christ. He uses all of these economic terms. All these economic terms talking about the surpassing worth. It's like somebody who you can't even count. That's an economic term about you can't even count how much money they, they have. They just have so much abundance. What happens in a person's heart? Right? When they go right to school, they get the right social order, and then they have an encounter that makes them see all of this is garbage. They have an encounter with Jesus. Paul uses these terms. It's like he's looking over the spreadsheet of his life, and he's noticing that he's done the books wrong. He's noticing that he's done all of the books wrong. It's like everything he thought was a positive was a negative. Imagine that. Many of you, this is your story. You've had a moment where you've had an encounter with Jesus and everything you thought that was worthwhile is actually not. That it flipped your value system completely. I don't ever seen this movie, not quite as popular as Braveheart, but The Big Short. I don't ever seen this. Big Short is basically a, a true story of Michael Burry. This is around the 2008 economic crash. A billion of uh, people's money he puts into credit default swaps. Like, basically, there's this moment where everything, everybody in the, in, the, in the country is putting their money into this one market, into these specific funds. And the reason why the economy crashed in 2008 is because everybody hedged their bets on something that was not good, something that was trash. And there's this one guy, Michael Burry, who kind of saw it coming. And he gets all of this flack because none of it makes sense what he decides to put his investors' money into. He figured out that the market that everyone was betting on was wrong, and then he bets against it. To live with passion, this is what this means, is to bet against the world. 
to bet against the value system of the culture around us that does not reflect Christ. This is not being against culture. This is about recognizing that there is a disorder. This is what sin is, is a disorder of our passions. Paul has a moment where he goes, I have measured everything backwards. In the big short, there's this investor who goes, oh my gosh, this nation is literally about to tank itself because it is investing in all of the wrong things. Jesus reorders our sense of who he is and what it means to be human. Another reason we're resistant to passion, one, I don't think we value Jesus the way we're supposed to. Two, I think we live in a utilitarian culture. It could have been sold again for a year's wages. It's not good stewardship. Mary knows this. But when you live in a world where everything is utilitarian, like everything has utility, everything has a purpose, when if it doesn't serve some really on-the-nose purpose, it must not be good. And that's where wonder and love and beauty dies. Or when we worship, do you know what we're doing when we worship? Anyone know what we're doing? We're ascribing worth. When we worship, we're like putting worth on something that's intrinsically, intrinsically worthy of our praise. When we worship, we're saying, I want to surrender to something that is more beautiful and good and holy, not just than I, but than anything else in the world. It's to ascribe worth. It's not transactional. We don't worship to get something. Psalm 27 says, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. This was written by David, who's a military leader. Military leader. He's got all sorts of, of uh, the trappings of wealth around him. He's got his family, and he goes, the one thing that I've asked, the one thing that I want more than anything else in this world is to be in the house of the Lord. When we lose our wonder for Jesus, when we reduce our faith, here's the point, when we reduce our faith to what we can get out of it, we have a problem. This gets in the way of our passion. We don't value Jesus the way that we're supposed to. And, and then two, we turn our faith into what I can get. We can, what I get, this is like hashtag Christianity. This is lifestyle Christianity, what I can get, instead of just valuing what is intrinsically beautiful. F.W. Bear says this, the beauty of uncalculating generosity is not to be measured by the yardstick of utility. By the yardstick of utility. We miss the beauty and person of Jesus when he's reduced to what he can do for me. Lastly, one more reason why I think we push back against living lives of passion for Jesus is passion is a prophetic critique of our uh, ulterior motives. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. You see someone who clearly loves Jesus, you want to critique them. Oftentimes it's because it feels like they are critiquing you. Oftentimes when you encounter somebody with a passion for Jesus, the reason why there's a little bit of, uh, is because there's a confrontation with your own apathy. Anyone experience this? I, never come, I know I've shared this before, man, but I don't have a better story. I've only lived one life. <laughs> Just this friend of mine who is this, like, passionate, like, vegan who also, like, just worked out a ton. And they were just, just everything about, they just cared so much about 
like their, their body in a specific way to live. And you guys have heard the joke, right, about vegans and, and atheists and CrossFitters, like what ties them all together? You guys aware of that story? You guys know an atheist and, a, and, a, and a cross, somebody who does CrossFit what, what, and a vegan walk into a bar? Do you know why? I don't know how you know. Yeah, because in the first 30 seconds, they told everybody. Yeah. So my friend was not like this. Just being in their presence. You ever been in the presence of somebody who goes to the gym a lot? Where's the angel? Yeah. You're in the presence of angel, and you just go to him. And you're like, man, I need to, I need to be fit. He's not rude about it. He's not, but my friend was not a jerk about their eating habits. They didn't push that on me. Just being in the presence of somebody who's got their priorities aligned around something, it, all of a sudden, I'm in their presence, and I go, oh, I'm going to hit the gym. <laughs> when we come into uh, proximity with the passion, somebody who is passionate about the things of Jesus, who have leveraged everything for the kingdom, it creates a critique. That's the same thing we come across people who are really positive. They can't really be that positive. Anyone, the resident cynic in their friend group? Yeah, don't raise your hand. I'm going to rebuke you. Stop. They see, we see passion almost as a threat. We often construct a way to manage our lives. And if we, criti- like, <laughs> if we feel criticized, we can put their fire out. Like we try to put their fire out so they can be lukewarm like us. It happens. So to live a life of passion, back to Mary in the jar. Normally they would take the lid off. This is the true context of the jar and they would just dab. The original dab. I'm not going to dab. Though I'm very tempted right now. I'm so tempted. No, no, no. No, no, they dab. <laughs> they, they, there's people in the back going, my wife is like, you know, that'll, you know that'll come back. You know that photo will emerge somewhere. They just did a little dab. Just put a little oil on. That was, the hospi- that was the piece of hospitality. You've been walking around all day. You're sweaty. You're gross. You come in. Someone like a rabbi comes in who's a respected figure. You sit down. Right? The woman would come in, give a little dab on the feet, a little dab on the hair, just like a, like a little refresher. That was, the, that was, that was the, uh, the tradition. So imagine coming up. Mary comes up with the jar. I like to imagine the scene. She's about to give Jesus the dab. She comes in. She's not supposed to be there. All the disciples are gathered around. She sits at his feet. The disciples are probably already, and some of the other people are looking around going, what is she doing here? Mary, again, get back in the kitchen. And Mary's like, nope, I know where I'm supposed to be. She sits there, and instead of giving a little dab, she goes. He breaks the bottle. And she starts washing his feet. And everybody is up in arms. She broke the jar and poured the perfume then on his head. Some of it's a little church, a little serving the poor, a little project. A little bit of this, a little bit of faith. Sundays feel good. It's a nice refresher. Feel good, positive, starting my week. It's a nice little thing. I'm not trying to take away. Uh, yeah, I am. I'm trying to take away from that. Sometimes you got to break the jar. Sometimes you got to break the jar. We can't come with these measured formulas of how to live. Sometimes we got to break the jar. 
Sometimes we've got to break the jar. Sometimes we've got to ask bigger questions about the limited time we actually have left in this life. Our church going into a new season has to ask serious questions to not be just content with a few folks like come to know Jesus. We have to, be, we have to ask serious questions about what we really mean about being a multicultural community. We have to ask really serious questions about what it means to really live within a reckless abandon and love for our city. What it means to unite around the things that matter most. Because I do not need to be, I'm like another person who reminds you that time is ticking away. There's that great scene in Dead Poets Society. I'm quoting a lot of movies today. Dead Poets Society, anybody on that one? Man, this great scene. And someone's like, no. Anyway, this is just these scenes in these movies that we're all drawn to. You could probably pick out your own film. These scenes where, like, all of a sudden, everything changes. All of a sudden, there's that moment where people, like these kids who are in this poetry class, Robin Williams, the teacher, and he's trying to get them to think about poetry not as something linear, or like, like math in a book. And so he's got them ripping out the pages, ripping out pages, and the, the principal, the headmaster, comes in, and he goes, what are you guys doing? Right? He comes in, he's classroom, gives a stern rebuke, this stern face, and Robin Williams goes, keep ripping, gentlemen. This is a battle, a war, and the casualties could be your hearts and souls. Keep ripping. Some of us have religious formulas to live safe and manageable lives, and the casualties have been our hearts. I'm going to go one more, Rocky Three, trying to cover the whole spectrum of movies. I don't know why I'm doing this today. It just feels right. Rocky three. What's the great line in that movie? Rocky is like gotten a little soft by Rocky three. He's a little soft. He's like, we're really doing this again? And there's the line from his coach. He says, you took a great fighter and you civilized him. May I humbly submit to us as a church in this next season, we are not going to civilize Jesus Christ. We are not going to civilize him. We are going to go full tilt. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. One moment of passion is worth more than a lifetime of mediocrity. One moment. This story is going to get told over and over and over and over and over again. This is our time. Passion takes over and disrupts mediocrity. It blows my mind when I walk into rooms full of Christians. The few hundred Christians, it feels like. I'm sure there's more than that in our city. And Jesus is not a topic of constant conversation. Blows my mind. So lastly, why does Jesus love this so much? And I think it's because of this word, passion. Before it was defined as anything else on this earth, this is what passion meant. The sufferings of Christ on the cross or his suffering subsequent to the Last Supper. The narrative of Christ's sufferings as recorded in the Gospels. There's a reason why passion of the Christ is called passion of the Christ. This is its first and foremost, its definition. Mary saw a moment, the value of Jesus, and took everything she had and leveraged it for the moment. It was a picture of something bigger and alluding to something bigger, which is the cross. Mary broke the bottle. Jesus breaks his body. She poured out the perfume. Jesus pours out his blood. He was the sacrifice for the sins of the world, and Jesus had that level of passion for you and me. And so when he sees people, when he sees churches live with that kind of reckless passion, that is the standard of what faith should be. Every time he saw passion, Jesus applauds it. Jesus is not a lukewarm Savior. 
Jesus comes to him. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Jesus is looking for a passionate response to his passion. Don't forget your first love, Jesus tells the church in Ephesus. Don't make him a worldview. See it and respond. The value of the possession is seen in the intensity of the pursuit. God would pursue us, and our response is to delight in that provision, to delight in his pursuit and to pursue him. Our response is thank you for the Christ. We delight in the cross. I end with this story. The gentleman named Pedro Arupi, who said uh, he was uh, on a fast track for success. Similar to Paul, he had all the right pedigree. He was about ready to kind of step into a pretty amazing field. And then the nuclear bomb went off in Hiroshima. What he does is instead... of following through. I mean, this happened hundreds of thousands of miles away from his home. It could have been contained in the life that he had set apart, the life that was set up for him, the ladder that he was meant to climb. Instead, he turns and joins a rescue team to go into Hiroshima right after the bomb had dropped to begin to serve and bless and help and rescue. Right, moves like this that we read about in stories. Like the earthquake went off in Mexico and the followers of Jesus who said, I'm going to move there because after the Red Cross leaves, there's still going to be decades and decades of work that needs to be done in rebuilding these communities. This is how Pedro explains why he did this. Because it didn't make any sense. Nothing is more practical than finding God, than falling in love in a quite absolute final way. What you are in love with, what seizes your imagination will affect everything. It will decide what will get you out of bed in the morning, what you do with your evenings, how you spend your weekends, what you read, whom you know, what breaks your heart, and what amazes you with joy and gratitude. Fall in love, stay in love, and it will decide everything. Read this again. Nothing is more practical than finding God. Than falling in love in a quite absolute and final way. What you are in love with, what seizes your imagination will affect everything. Mary keeps going to the feet of Jesus. She keeps going and she's not allowed. She's breaking cultural norm after cultural norm and stepping up and going, I know where I need to be. And in a moment of reckless passion goes, yeah, 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 I know that oil, we could use it for all sorts of things, but this is the moment that we need to seize. 
It will decide what gets you out of bed in the morning, what you do with your evenings, how you spend your weekends, what you read, whom you know, what breaks your heart, and what amazes you with joy and gratitude. We fall in love, you stay in love, and it will decide everything. Church, we get an opportunity, a a short time together. short time together in this city. There's a lot of people. A lot of people in this city. Thousands of people in this city. Who I honestly think, honestly, forgive me if this sounds naive, but I, I honestly think, actually really want the church to be the church. And they really want the church to step up and be what it always says it is supposed to be. And before it can be anything, before it can be empowered to do anything and move in any which direction, it needs the Spirit of God to guide it. It needs a group of people who are poured out in total abandon for the things that value most, that don't allow a lesser view of Jesus but don't allow for the cultural issues that kick back at us when we feel awkward about living our lives with abandon for Jesus and reordering our values. This is what our, our God is calling us to in this season. There's all sorts of ways these goals make sense. Some stuff has already been put into place. and There's some, all, some beautiful things coming up in the new year in 2018. Ways that this bigger vision manifests itself into some specific goals. But we just couldn't get away. We couldn't get away. We couldn't get away from asking that, that question, what happens when our church lives with passion? So I'm going to invite the, the servers up. And we're going we're gonna to engage this passion by taking communion. We're going to engage this by going and taking his body, taking his blood, this rich imagery of literally like ingesting Jesus, of acknowledging the greatest act of love the world has ever seen, the God of the universe, laying down his life for us. It's as if God threw his heart into the world and came after us. This is God's reckless passion for us, for he so loved us. For he has so laid himself down and aside and humbled himself that we would know ultimately who God is and that we would know his love and know his forgiveness and know then the invitation before us to extend that sort of reckless love to the world around us. I want to humbly submit that every single one of us would feel a conviction of the spirit in this moment of ways that we need to reorder. Reorder the value system in our hearts. Because the culture of our city will be affected by the culture of a passionate church. And the culture of that passionate church will be affected by the culture of the individuals and the hearts and the families of those here in this room. And so as we come to the table and as we take the bread and as we dip it in the cup. May we remember. May we remember the passion that God has for us church I pray right now 
in this moment that you would know again, like, all, like know all over again, or maybe for some of us it's for the first time, you would know God's passion for you, his deep and rich love for you, that you would know it and that it would break the chains of cynicism in your heart. It would break the trappings of wealth that you have in your life. It would break the comfortability. It would break your fear of people. It would break down your desire to maintain and stay in the status quo. It would set free your finances. It would set you free from the things that bind you and it would reorder the things that you care about that you would know, that you would know God's reckless love and passion for you today. Lord Jesus, as we take this bread and drink this cup, would you meet us here? Would you set our church like a blaze? Would you set this church on fire? As we take the bread and tip it in the cup, would you, in that thin place, Lord, just overwhelm us with your love, with your passion, that we, as we seek you, as we seek to love and bless and join you in what you are doing, we would find ourselves Serving, Lord, from the rich well of your blessing and love. In this moment, Lord, would you speak? May we consider everything else garbage compared to knowing you.